Thank you, Sam. Nice. Got guys and girls night here, huh? Well, tonight we are in the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. The last chapter of Genesis gives us the account of the burial of Jacob, the fear of Jacob's brothers after Jacob's death, and the chapter ends with the death of Joseph. I found it interesting that Genesis began with creation and now ends with death. It started with purity. I mean, when you start reading Genesis and you see the innocence and and the purity and just everything right, and then all of a sudden the ramifications of sin start taking place and it starts opening up into a just, you know, ugliness. And chapter 50 now ends with death. There's two things in life that are certain. Death and taxes. (laughs) So tonight we are going to look at the funeral of Joseph's father, verses 1 to 14. The fear of Joseph's brothers, verses 15 to 21. And the final days of Joseph, verses 22 to 26. But we're going to begin by reading chapter 49, verses 29 to 33, so we can get the, the flow leading into chapter 50. Verse 29 of chapter 49 says, Then he, speaking of Jacob, then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. So Jacob wanted to be buried in Canaan instead of Egypt. Because God had promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. Jacob knew his history. Look at verse 33. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet. He drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last. And was gathered to his people. Jacob breathed his last. The King James Version says that he yielded up the ghost. It's interesting because Jacob, throughout his life, he had to deal with death in some very interesting ways. His wife Rachel, who he loved, died while giving birth to Benjamin. He went through a period where he was told that his son Joseph was dead. 
chapter 37, 35 says, and all the sons and all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. While Simeon was held back in Egypt and Benjamin was required to return uh, to show honesty on the part of Jacob's sons, Jacob was worried about death. He said in Genesis 42:38, My son shall, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. When Jacob found out that Joseph was alive after he had, he had been reunited with his son, he declared to Joseph in 4630, he said, Now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. And now Jacob himself is dead. He breathed his last and he died. So now we go into chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Even, even though his death was not unexpected, when Jacob died, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph's mourning showed his great affection and grief for his father. This is part of our human condition. There's grief and sorrow when a loved one dies. The Bible shows us that normal grief is proper. It's a proper human emotion. And that tears are the normal response when someone dies. Jesus wept with Martha and Mary when they were grief-stricken at the tomb of their brother Lazarus. John 11, 33-36 says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have they laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35 of chapter 11 tells us that Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? So grief is proper when a loved one dies, when we lose a loved one. And even if the loved one is a Christian and you know that they're with the Lord, it's not unspiritual if, if you don't grieve. Joseph knew that he would never be able to talk with his father again. Joseph went on to live another 54 years. And there were probably many times during those years that he wished he could have talked with his dad. But he could not. It's that feeling of missing a loved one who has died that, that makes our hearts ache. Sometimes for years. I miss having lunch with my mom. I used to have lunch with her every two two weeks or so. She lived in here in Alhambra and I'd go spend a lunchtime with her and we'd have lunch and my mom, uh, she would read the newspaper and she loved uh, Shaquille O'Neal and 
and she'd tell me, how come Shaquille and Kobe are fighting, you know? And it was fun. I used to, she used to make me this great meal. And, you know, I, we would talk and spend time together, and she'd pour her heart out to me. And, uh, you know, it, well, it, there's nothing wrong with missing that love when our hearts ache for them. But we have to look to the Lord to help us work through grief when this happens, when someone dies. And this process takes time. We grieve because death separates us from loved ones. So as Christians, it's proper to grieve at the death of a loved one. But as Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Look at verse 2. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So so the physicians embalmed Israel. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And because of his high-ranking position, his father would be treated as a person of high rank. And having his father embalmed would, would also help in the journey in taking him back to Canaan. Egypt was known for its exceptional embalming, its form of embalming. The process of Egyptian embalming, it was was pretty interesting, as I'm going to describe here. And it was a process that lasted 40 days, verse 3 tells us. The embalmers would take the body and begin by taking the brains out through the nasal cavity using a rod with a hook. Then they would make an incision on the left side of the abdomen and the eternal organs were removed and the body was dried out. The heart was then put back in the body. Then the embalmers would pack the body with myrrh and with cinnamon, oil of cedar and cassia. Then they would sew the body, wrap it tightly in linen with a lime compound and would put it in a wood case like a coffin. Crazy, huh? So in essence, Joseph's daddy became a mummy. (laughs) I was hoping you'd get that. But, but Jacob's body was well preserved. Look at verse 3. It goes on to say, 40 days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. At the end of verse 3 here, you see the Egyptians uh, showing their respect for Joseph by entering into his grief. They mourned for him for 70 days. The Egyptians would mourn for a pharaoh for 72 days. So we see that Jacob is is being given honor nearly as equal to that of a pharaoh. And the reason was Joseph. This shows how highly they regarded Joseph. Joseph's conduct resulted in great honor for Jacob. And and, and it's, it's the same for God's people. The conduct of God's people can result in great honor for the Lord. In contrast, we need to be careful that we're not like Joseph's brothers, where their conduct brought shame and dishonor instead of honor to the Father. 
So after the mourning period was over, it was time to move Jacob's body to Canaan for the burial that he had requested. Look at verses 4 through 6. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in, in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. In this passage, we see Joseph demonstrate proper regard and respect for Pharaoh. Even though Joseph had a high rank in Egypt, he does not undermine Pharaoh's authority or, or, or even diminish Pharaoh's throne. So he requested permission through Pharaoh's household to go to Canaan to bury his father. And some say that he may have gone through Pharaoh's household because he might have been ceremonially unclean at this point. But Joseph asks in verse 4, he says, if, I, if now I have found favor in your eyes. See, this is the expression of someone speaking to his superior. Joseph is basically saying, if, if you think well of me, then I have a favor to ask of you. And at the end of verse 6, Pharaoh quickly approved. You see, Pharaoh valued Joseph's conduct. And Joseph's value to the land of Egypt. He was a value to the land of Egypt. So it had influenced him to accommodate Joseph as much as possible. Look at verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the house, of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. Verse 9 says, and there, went, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and a very great gathering. This was a huge funeral procession that went up there to Canaan with Joseph. The end of verse 9 tells us that it was a very great gathering. This expresses the size of the procession. It was massive. The entourage probably numbered in the hundreds. With him were Egyptian VIPs, the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Then you had those who represented Joseph's household, his brothers and his father's household. But did you notice there was one exception in verse 8? Verse 8 tells us that the little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. They probably had to ensure that Joseph would return back to Egypt. On top of that, you had, the, you had chariots and horsemen. Because a huge crowd like this would need protection. As they went across the Sinai Desert. To Canaan for the burial of Jacob and the chariots and horsemen would provide this. They would provide that protection. Joseph's position could afford him to have this type of protection. And his position gave him the financial ability to make Jacob's funeral as nice as possible. Look at verse 10. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great 
and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. The procession stopped at a place called the threshing floor of Atad. And then they observed a seven-day period of mourning. Threshing floors were usually in a field, in the open air. They were in a flat open area on the ground where the grain was placed to dry after harvesting it and it was later beaten or crushed to separate the grain from the chaff. The word atad, it means bramble or thorn bush. So they stopped by the plain of the thorn bush. It was on the border between Egypt and Canaan. And there they had a seven day period of mourning. And when we look at funerals and memorial services, it's, ha- it's a helpful part of the mourning process for family and friends. Many times it helps to give a sense of closure to the person's death. Even though the funeral focuses on the deceased and paying our respects to the person, funerals are, are for the living, not for the dead. Look at verse 11. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abil Mizarim, which is beyond the Jordan. See, the, the, the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad drew the attention of the Canaanites who, who lived near. That loud mourning, it made this impression on them. They heard it. So they called the place Abil Mizarim, which means the meadow of the Egyptians. And some say that the seven-day period of more, may have been mainly for the Egyptians to allow them one last opportunity to grieve with Joseph and his family before Joseph and his family took the, his dad to the cave. Look at verses 12 and 13. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite as a property for a burial place. The writer lets us know that the sons carried out the command given by Jacob. Turn to Genesis 47. Turn to chapter 47 real quick, 29 to 31. And this is where Joseph had taken the oath. Chapter 47, verse 29 says, When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, Please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Joseph fulfilled the oath to his father. This is not only a testament of love for his father, but it also gave testament to faith in the, in, in the promises, in God's promises that one day the land would go to their ancestors for a possession. So when we deal, you know, I, I look at 
all this and I think of funerals as we see this procession and we see all that was going on here. And, you know, we, we all have to deal with them at some point. When we deal with funerals, you got to realize, and, and it's up to you, but you don't have to spend a fortune on them. Even though the funeral homes try to influence you to spend a fortune on them. I remember when we were going to bury my father-in-law and I went to make arrangements. And I go into this room and they had all these coffins, like in a showroom. And the guy there, he points me to one and he goes, this is a coffin you don't have to be ashamed of. I swear, I went, did I just hear this right? I said, what? Give me that one over there, you know, and it was the, the low-end model, you know, and it just, I couldn't believe that he did that. And I was thinking about, I went to a, a, a funeral of a, of a boss that I used to work for who was a Jewish man, and he had a pie, simple pine coffin no lacquer or anything, just nice wood, simple, with a star of David. Beautiful and elegant, but, you know, compared to like what I saw at this place with the gloss and the gold sides and all that, you know, it's crazy. Sometimes people spend too much out of emotion. Sometimes it's out of guilt. That they do this. And I've seen that. Joseph here in our, in our passage. He spent in accordance with his position. Because you think about it. If, if Joseph had gone cheap. Even though he had the ability to do a really nice funeral. It might have revealed his lack of, of affection. They might have seen that as a lack of affection or respect for his father. There's also the question of cremation versus burial when you deal with funerals. And when you look at that whole aspect, there's you know some who have differences as to whether a person should be buried or cremated. Some say that cremation is not biblical or it dishonors the body. But you don't really find that in scripture, that anything in scripture that forbids cremation. And if you really think about it, cremation will do the same thing that burial ends up doing, but in a shorter time. And I also believe that when Jesus returns, he will be able to resurrect a cremated body just as easy as a decomposed, buried body. It's not hard for our Lord to do that. And bottom line, it's a matter of a person's conscience, their their, their personal choice and what the family decides. And even that can get political. You know, but for some, visiting a gravesite, you know, it, it's helpful for remembrance. I just did a funeral last Friday. You know, and, and it was very emotional. And the people were just very emotional about the whole thing. And we get to the gravesite and I get off the car and I saw these mariachis over just spread out all over the place. And I'm going... Wow, that must have been the last funeral that just happened right now, a while ago. So, you know, we pull out the casket and we start walking. All of a sudden, I turn around and these mariachis are playing away behind me, you know, a whole procession. And then people get very emotional. I'm going, oh my gosh, you didn't tell me about that. 
you know, and people get very emotional about these things and they do this whole, you know, that was more em emphasized than anything else. But funerals do not affect the deceased person at all. In reality, they're really for the living. Even though it's important to me memorialize the deceased, it is for the living. And sometimes ugh, funerals are a distortion of what the person was really like. You know, you eulogize this person on, you know, like they were the greatest thing on earth, but live, yet they lived a very sinful life. I've been at a funeral and I'm sitting in the back there and, you know, a guy comes up to eulogize his buddy and he says, you know, we used to party together and do all this stuff, but he always went home to his wife. <coughs> you know, and I'm going, okay, well, it's kind of contradictory there. You know, and people... They do these things. The other thing that happens is that people let everyone know that the person who died is in heaven. You know, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I've had to deal with that. I've had to deal with that, you know, and, and, and yet the person you know lived like the devil. And they were not born again. So funerals can be a very deceptive event, but for the person who dies in the Lord, it makes all the difference. So this funeral procession gave Jacob great honor. It was an impressive procession of family and government officials. Verse 14 goes on to tell us, And after he had buried his father, Joseph, his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. After Joseph had buried his father, he returns to Egypt. He returned to Egypt and he and his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. And even though God's great promises were connected to Canaan, Joseph was not tempted to stay there. He knew his calling was connected to Egypt. He probably, I picture him taking a look at the land of promise there. A land he had not seen since he was 17 and then he went back to the place where God had called him to, to Egypt. It's interesting because we have a calling from God. I have a calling, you have a calling and we need to make sure that we stick to that calling that God has placed on us. And sometimes we have to make sacrifices to stay true to the calling that God has given us. And if we get discouraged or we get overwhelmed, then we have to ask the Lord for that strength to persevere in our life and our ministry because we have callings on our lives. The question is, what is your calling? Are you prepared to fulfill it? Are you continuing to persevere in your life? In that calling? Or maybe you just feel aimless. Maybe you feel like... You don't have a real sense of calling. Then you need to seek the Lord. You need to spend that special time with him, seeking him, asking him to give you a calling or confirm the calling that he's placed on your life. As we look at this section in verse 14, um, there's also a sense of finality. I see a sense of the end of an era at this point. 
The verse says, Joseph and his brothers returned to Egypt. There's now no stain in Can- there at Canaan. And sometimes when we go through the loss of a loved one, a grieving person turns to a new, a new pattern of living. That's not tied to the past. Sometimes people don't live in the same home anymore. There's too much connections there. Things like that. And I, I see that as implied here in verse 14 as Joseph and his, his brothers return to Egypt where they had left their children and jobs. It's the end of an era. They're going back there. And having completed their mission, Joseph and his entourage uh, would then return to the threshing floor of Atad. They rejoined the Egyptians and they returned back to Egypt. In verses 15 to 21, the fear of Joseph's brothers. Once their father had died, these deep-rooted fears surface in the brothers. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil we did to him. Seventeen years later, the brothers become troubled with fear and guilt about the way they had treated Joseph in the past. The thought may have surfaced that Joseph was just waiting for their father to pass away out of respect for him. And soon as he was dead, you know, they, they might have thought that he's going to take us out like Michael Corleone did to Fredo in The Godfather. <laughs> the thought consumed them to the point that they assumed that Joseph would hate them and take revenge. And it's crazy how the enemy can try to instill fear and guilt of our past sins in our minds. It's a battle that, that, that sometimes attacks our minds and tries to rob us of peace. But if we have given our lives to Jesus and repented of our sins, that we need to stand on the promises of the word of God. Psalm 103.12, as far as east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our inequities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And we need to stand on these promises when, when guilt and, and, and doubt try to rob our fear, try to rob our peace. So the brothers in their fear, they sent messengers and, and they actually make a false claim that their father Jacob had issued this command for Joseph to forgive his brothers. Look at verse 16. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded us saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Their father Jacob, he he probably never did this because he knew that Joseph had completely forgiven his brothers. And, and And it's funny because sometimes out of panic, 
Sometimes out of fear and taking our eyes off the Lord, we react. And we might say something that is not true. We've all done that, I'm sure. I'm not the only one, am I? (laughs) We say or we do things that we should not have. It's like when you get pulled over by a police officer. And he asked you if you were going the speed limit. Have you ever said yes when you know you weren't? Or a boss may ask you if you got something done and out of a quick reaction or just, you know, you're scared, you say yes when you know you didn't and you were supposed to. I did that once. I had a manager who asked me and I said yes instantly and I, and I felt so convicted. And I felt bad. And she went back to her office and I went back there and I said, you know, Susan, I said yes, but it was no. I, I didn't, haven't got it done. And that really spoke to her, you know, because I was honest about that. Instead of her finding out later that I didn't get it done, she would have railed me. But I got it right right away, and we need to do that sometimes. But in the case of the brothers, they were trying to save their hide overall. When they should have been trusting in the Lord. And we live in a society where sin and lying are just out of control and they're evaded through self-deception. Nowadays, instead of owning up to sin and lying, a person is approached and asked, you know, why are you really doing this? Or how did it make you feel to do this? You know, and it's this whole PC psychological game that's played and, and people evade. Have you seen the, heard those commercials lately? If you've been in trouble, we can get you off with nothing, you know. <laughs> There's these crazy commercials about it. If you owe taxes and you haven't paid your taxes, we can get you off. What about responsibility, you know? <laughs> what happened to that? The word sin and lying have lost a lot of its impact to most people in our culture. But as God's people, we must fear sin and lying. We must hate it and re- and grieve over it. We must own up to it and call it for what it is. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But on this I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. On the positive side, the brothers, they did own up to their sin against Joseph. They did call it, they did not call it a mistake or a lapse in judgment, as there is a tendency to do. The brothers use words like the evil we did to him, trespasses and sin. In verse 17, uh, they plead for forgiveness. They They fall down before Joseph and offer themselves as servants. Then the end of verse 17 says that, and this is incredible. It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Crazy. I I mean, it must have just blown them away. That Joseph wept there again. He's like, 
Then in verses 19 to 21, we have Joseph's powerful response to his brothers. Look at verse 19. It says, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. It's crazy. I mean, Joseph weeps and the first thing he do he does after that is, put, is try to put them at ease. He tells them, do not be afraid. He's, he's reassuring them. And then he tells them, for, I, for am I in the place of God? Again, it's interesting because Genesis opened with Adam and Eve trying to become like God. And now it closes with Joseph denying that he's in God's place. But Joseph is basically saying to them that judgment and vengeance belongs to God, not to him. Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both you, for, both for yourselves and for all. So Joseph was letting them know that he would not consider taking an action that belonged only to God. And even though their actions were evil, the result was intended uh, by God for good. Notice in verse 20, Joseph tells them, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. <coughs> Joseph was not angry because he focused on God's providence. He understood God's intervening purposes and were, that they were being accomplished in God's ultimate plan to save many alive. And throughout Genesis, we have seen the hatred and the cruelty of his brothers. We've seen Joseph working as a slave. We've seen him falsely accused and put in prison. We've seen him abandoned and forgotten in prison. We've also seen him taken out of prison and promoted to a position of, of respect and power and prominence in Egypt. We saw God use Joseph to bring his brothers to a place of repentance. We saw as Joseph was reunited with his brothers and we saw him reunited with his father. We have seen Joseph go through all these highs and lows. And throughout all of this, one truth held true in his life. God meant it for good. You see, Joseph came to see the evil done to him in a way that God brought good. What a perspective to have in our walk with the Lord. What a source of internal strength this type of heart attitude brings. As a result, Joseph returned kindness and grace instead of vengeance to his brothers. Romans 12, 20 and 21. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the broad picture, Joseph, in his response to his brothers, is, is in a sense, he's recapping God's overall plan that has gone on throughout Genesis. 
God's purpose is to bless mankind through the line of Abraham. The promise. And his purpose is accomplished in spite of all the actions of his people. And God wants us to understand that he is God. And we are not. He's in control. He wants us to trust him. And know that he has a plan for our lives. And he can use life's reversals, life's setbacks to work in our lives and move us forward. We need to trust him. We need to trust in his promises. We need to see that God's providence is being worked out. Is it easy? No. But that's where our walk comes in with the Lord. So in verse 21, Joseph reassured them that the kindness he showed them while his father was alive would continue. Look at verse 21. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And as we go through life, there will be times when we are hurt by the words and actions of others. And sometimes we're hurt deeply. And the thing is, we cannot help what others do to us, but we can help what we do with the hurts of others. When sinful or insensitive words and cruel actions of others hurt us, we really have two ways that we can deal with them. We can be angry, we can take revenge, we can hold a grudge, we can be spiteful, or we can pray, forgive, and leave the issue in the hands of God. Only, only, only God's power and his spirit can do that in us. <laughs> we're not, in our own flesh, in our own humanity, we're not prone to do that. But that's proof that we know the Lord. That's proof that he's working in our lives. Ephesians 4.32, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, on the flip side, though, if you are the one who has offended someone, if you are the one holding a grudge or just being spiteful to someone, then you need to take the matter before the Lord. You need to repent. I need to repent if I'm doing that. And go to the person and try to reach a place of forgiveness. It's important as believers to do what we can to make things right. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by this many become defiled. With the help of the Lord we can take, we can take care of our part. To make sure that we do things right before we leave this earth. One day we're all going to have to leave this world. The question is, will we leave this world with a clean conscience toward others? Joseph was able to leave with a clean conscience toward others. Now in verses 22 to 26, we have the final days of Joseph. Look at verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. More than 50 years passed between verses 21 and 22. And Joseph did not desert his brothers. He 
kept his promise. And even though he had a high position in Egypt and was highly respected by the Egyptians, he promised to care for his family and he fulfilled that promise. He lived 110 years. Look at verse 23. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. This verse just, it spoke to me. I love this verse. It touched my heart now that I'm a grandfather. (laughs) Joseph got to see his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And at the end of the verse, it says that they were also brought up on his knees. They were brought up on Joseph's knees. This speaks of Joseph delighting in his grandchildren. He was able to enjoy them. I can relate to this. Joseph experienced all kinds of trials in his early days. But his latter days were filled with the joy of his family. What a wonderful grandfather Joseph must have been. I can picture him with the little ones on his knee telling this, all the stories of the past history. Sitting there at them on his knees and he probably told them about Cain and Abel and the flood and about the Tower of Babel and Abraham going into the promised land. And probably told them about the offering of Isaac at Mount Moriah and Jacob's ladder reaching down to heaven. He shared all these stories with his grandchildren that later came to be in our Bibles. What a great role for a, a grandparent or a parent to be able to share God's truth and principles with your grandchildren. What an important role to have to, to be that conduit, a link to the Lord, to the little ones. That's what we're supposed to do especially as grandparents and also to spoil their dinner with a treat, you know, before they, (laughs) when no one's looking. So Joseph was not the high figure of Egypt. He was also a grandfather. In verses 24 and 25, Joseph announces to his brethren about his death. And then he reiterates God's promises. It says, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you. And bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph, he tells his brothers four important things here. First, that God would come to Israel's aid. Twice he repeats this phrase, God will surely visit you. The word visit means that God would intervene in the affairs of his people or come to do something powerful or significant for them. And Joseph is basically saying that God will come to Jacob's family to protect, to help, and to care for them. And it has the sense of of something being certain. It, it It can be translated, but God will come to help you. I am sure that God will appear to you. Verse 24 is a link to the Exodus story and is basically the same as the words that Jacob spoke uh, to Joseph in chapter 48, verse 21. There are two, there are, there are, 
the types of words as here in verse 24 that we need to leave with our loved ones. These are the kind of words we need to leave with them. We need to encourage them of God's care and that he is all they need. Second, Joseph also told them that God would take them up out of Egypt. And, and although God's people here would spend 400 years in Egyptian bondage, Joseph saw a brighter day. He saw hope. And third, Joseph was letting them know that God would bring them to the promised land. Joseph is recapping in faith what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob said on their deathbeds. And fourth, Joseph made known his wishes to be buried in the promised land. Even as Joseph is at the end of his life, he continues to display an incredible faith in God. He's expressed, he expressed a strong faith and confidence in God's covenant promises that they would come to pass. In Exodus 13, you see how God answered Joseph's request. Moses and the children of Israel took the bones of Joseph with them when they left Egypt. And Joseph is also listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Because of this, it says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. And it's because of this passage here. Look at verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He, also, he died and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, but he was different from Jacob, his father. Joseph's body was not buried immediately. Instead, his coffin was stayed above ground for 400 years until the people of Israel took it back to Canaan as they left under Moses' leadership. It stood as a testimony of faith of this great man. This coffin preached an incredible message to the people of Israel as it stood there for all those years. It sat in Egypt and preached a message that Israel would go back to the promised land. Joseph dies believing that God will visit his people and one day take them to a better land. This is to be the belief, this is to be the hope of the person who has given his or her life to Jesus Christ. We are to be looking to the Lord to take us to a better land. To one day soon be with him. What a great promise for the person who has given his life to the Lord. Our Lord is preparing a place for us, you guys. And it may even be one day soon. Or he could return before we face death. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. But even if he doesn't come, while we're alive and we face the grave, we still have the promise that the believer in Christ will be with him. Second Corinthians 5.8 We are confident, yes, well-pleasing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So whether we go 
by way of the grave or the Lord takes us up in the clouds. Either way, it's a win-win situation if we walk with the Lord, if we know him tonight. Joseph left this world clinging to the great promises of a mighty God. What a fitting end to the end of the book of Genesis, huh? And as we looked at Joseph's journey in life, we see that God used all the valleys and the victories of Joseph's life to reach Joseph's brothers, to encourage Jacob, to bring the children of Israel to Egypt, and to accomplish his redemptive plan. God did truly mean it for good. And we may go through trials. We may go through situations. We may go through things in our lives. And they may not be things that are going to save nations. But as we go through this life as believers in Christ. We can live knowing that all things work together for good. To those who love the Lord. Who love God. Those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see that Genesis began with creation, And it ends with a coffin. It began with a garden. And now it ends with a dead man. In these last several months through Genesis. It's been pretty incredible. We've we've gone from Eden to Egypt. We started within the beginning. And through these last several months. We've seen. The pleasure of paradise. The the shame of Shechem. We've seen Eve deceived. Dinah disgraced. We've seen twins struggling in the womb. Men wrestling with each other and with God. We've seen barrenness and and fruitfulness in the past month. We've seen famine. Seen a great flood. We've seen marriages made, covenants sealed with eternal promises. But above all these different events and people and places, through it all, we have seen God's wonderful eternal purposes being worked out in the, in the midst of all of this. God has made himself known to the people he created and he loves uh, to point to the ultimate sacrifice. The sovereign hand of God in the midst of human history is a major emphasis in all of these events. He has great promises regarding our future if we walk with him. But there's our human responsibility on our part. We have seen this demonstrated in the past months in the lives of in the people of Genesis. You, you know, you, you've seen God confront Cain with his anger, but Cain disregarded God's warning and went on to murder his brother. But on the flip side, we've seen Noah who refused to go along with the godless culture. And he was delivered from God's judgment through his obedient faith. 
We've seen throughout Genesis all those contrasts between those who obeyed God and those who were blessed, those who were blessed and those who disobeyed God and went through the consequences. Genesis shows us that God is a holy God who judges sin. It's not popular in our day. People want to have a nice God, small g, who is tolerant of sin. And we have the choice to create a false God, small g, in our minds that fits our own liking or submit to the God that is revealed in Genesis that we have seen in these past months. Genesis reveals to us who God is. We have no excuse. Genesis tells us who God is, who we are, and what we must do. And I pray that we would obey the message of Genesis. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all these months, Lord. It's gone so fast. But yet, Lord, what a wealth of of instruction and and seeking your word, Lord, throughout these months, Lord, and seeing all the different circumstances in life, Father, and things that have gone on, Lord, starting with perfection and just ending with, Lord, sin and death, Lord. And Father, help us to take all this and realize that we need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. We need to cling to you, Lord. Father, for you alone have the words of eternal life. Help us to reflect. Help us bring to surface these passages, Lord, that we have seen in the past months when we are dealing with certain aspects and when we are going through things daily, Lord, that they would just surface and we'd cling to you and stand on your truths, Lord. Father, thank you for everyone here, Lord. We love you. We commit our lives to you, Lord. Go before us now, Lord. Strengthen us in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.